So I'm Richard, and I'm an alcoholic. You all alcoholics in this room? <laughs> you all happy to be here? So that was the most newcomer chips I've seen given out in one meeting at one time, maybe in my life. That was so bitching. So all of you people that were new, welcome, you know, that's what a treat. And so many of you, I guess, are at this facility, right? How many of you were new? Put your hands up. I want to see this. Yikes. And of you, how many of you aren't at this facility? Oh, so you, Ashland House? All right, all right. Ashland Angels, okay. Yeah, we're going to go with that one. Yeah. Anyway, it's my first time to talk at this meeting at this location, and I like it. It's a nice place. You guys did good. At the other location, it was a little harder to get to being up where it was. And uh, and uh, this one, they got that toll road out there that I haven't quite mastered yet. I don't have a transponder, and I looked it up, and they just said, just drive. And I guess they bill you later, or you go online, or... <laughs> But I know that if you don't pay on time, all of a sudden you start getting these gigantic fines. So I'll be looking into that first thing tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I was born and raised in Long Beach. So you all know where Long Beach is, I'm assuming, except for the people from Arkansas and a few of those other places you may not know. Turn up the mic or... Mic man, mic man. How's that? How's that? Better? Better? In that case, I'm going to yell. Did I say I was from Long Beach? You heard that part, right? Um, and when I grew up there, um, there was a lot of young families. And, and World War II had ended seven years before I was born or five years or six years or something like that. So all these young families, you know, they're having children. They're moving into their first little house, their first little houses. And... Uh, and in Long Beach, I lived in this neighborhood. It looked like it looked like Father Knows Best or Leave It to Beaver. I mean, it just looked like a very uh, normal little neighborhood. A lot of a lot of families, a lot of children, and uh, and it looked normal. But I'm telling you, trouble was a brewing. I mean, these kids in this neighborhood were going to grow up to be anything but normal. Almost all of us. And uh, anyway, I was the youngest kid on this block. You know, all the other kids were one or two or three years older than me. And I never felt like I measured up. I never felt like I was part of them or one of them. And, uh, and, uh, and I always wanted to be, and I would hang around with these guys as sort of the, you know, the, the orphan. And, and, they, and they always seemed to know what to do. They seemed to know how to do life. They seemed I mean, like they had it together. I mean, they're I'm nine, I'm six, and these nine-year-olds knew life. And uh, the six-year-olds didn't, you know. And, uh, but anyway, so I always tagged around with these guys, and I thought I had a pretty normal childhood uh, as I was growing up. But I was always in fear. You know, I was in fear about a lot of stuff. And I don't know where that comes from because I had an older brother who didn't behave that way, and I had a younger sister who didn't seem to feel that way. But I did, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know what caused that. It doesn't really matter. Um, but when I got to be about 10 years old, these kids were 12, 13, 14 years old, and they started drinking alcohol. And they wouldn't let me drink with them because I was too young, but I watched them drink, and I thought, for whatever reason, it looked like they had so much fun, and they had this camaraderie going on when they would get drunk. I mean, they're 13, 14 years old getting drunk together, so they're knuckleheads at best, but I thought, look at these guys. Look at these grown-up dudes doing grown-up things. Man, I can't wait till I can do that. Now, I didn't know what alcohol would do to me or for me. How could I? I never had it before, but I knew I wanted to be doing what they were doing. I wanted to hang with the guys. 
And when I got to be about that age, they let me drink with them. You know, they'd give me a beer here and there, they'd give me a little wine, you know, whatever they had, I would get to drink with them when I was about 13 and 14 years old, 15 a little bit. And so I'm kind of experimenting. What I discovered when I drank with these guys, or when I drank at all, was that all those fears that I had vanished. You know, I would drink booze and the fear would leave. And I was afraid of these same guys I wanted to hang around with. I was afraid of my parents. I was afraid of school teachers. I was afraid of police. I was deathly afraid of girls. Like, you guys were a mystery to me, I'm telling you. And you kind of still are, I'm telling you. <laughs> and maybe that's how it should be. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's how God created us, to never figure each other out. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I drank and all those fears left. And I thought, man, I'm going to do this whenever I can. And, and so I drank, you know, when I could for those first few years. And then I started high school. And in high school in Long Beach at the time, it started with 10th grade. My 10th grade class had 1,100 kids in it. And that's a huge class, right? In the first week of school, out of that 1,100 kids, I met the one guy who wanted to drink just like me. And I don't know how we find each other. Like, we have some kind of radar, you know, for where's another alcoholic? Let's get him. And, and uh, <coughs> so he and I set out to get drunk together. We got drunk together every day. Every day. We didn't take days off. We made it to school. We'd get drunk after school. We'd get drunk at night. Sometimes we'd get drunk instead of going to school, but we got drunk every day. And I got drunk every day after that period. Every day after that. I just drank. I loved getting drunk. It was just a party. My life was a party. You know, I surfed. I rode waves. I chased girls. I did all sorts of other fun things, but I was going to drink every single day. And when I drink, that means get drunk. It doesn't mean drink a few or a little. That means a lot and get drunk. And then I was getting in trouble from this stuff right away. When I was 16 years old, I was going to go out on what I consider to be my first official date because it involved a, a car and a girl. And, uh, and so I'm going to go pick up this date. And she lived all the way across town. And, and I was afraid, you know, I was nervous about the date. So I thought, well, you know, it helps, what helps me out with this fear is booze. So I'll get a pint of booze and I'll drink it on the way out to the date's place, right? Take the edge off. And as I'm getting ready to leave, I thought, I don't know if that's going to quite do the job. I mean, a pint of booze, it'll, it'll, you know, I'll get, I'll get half drunk, but I'm pretty nervous about this. But I also had at my disposal at the time some pills. And, uh, and the big book refers to these kinds of pills as high-powered sedatives. And the medical community called them barbiturates. And in Long Beach, we call them reds, you know. <laughs> and reds will get you there, you know. <laughs> you take reds and you mix it with booze, you're going places probably that aren't legal. But anyway, so I so I figure well, if I take the reds and I drink the booze on my way out there, when I take when I have my date, I'll be so all suave, you know, nothing will bother me then. So I do. I eat a handful of reds and I drink the booze on the way out to pick up the date. I pull up in front of her house. I see her front door right across the street. I'm in my car. There's her front door. And to this day, I don't know if I ever made it to the front door. I have no idea. You know, I was so ripped, I just went into a blackout, I guess. I don't know if I had the date. Hell, I might have got lucky. I have no idea. I have no idea what happened that night. But I do know that, that around 2 in the morning, I'm driving home from the alleged date, and I get almost home. And I lived near the street where you had to go down the street and then dip inside of an island and keep going straight. So I have to do a little dip like that. Not a horrible maneuver, but I was really ripped and I over dipped, right? And I, and I, and I dipped and I ran right into a parked car and I hit it so hard it went up on a lawn and I left. You know, I got the hell out of there and I, and I only lived a few blocks from there. So I drove down a block, over two blocks, back half a block, parked my car in the, in the driveway at my parents' house when I was 16 years old. And I went in and went to bed like nothing had happened. 
Well, the guy whose lawn the car landed on, it was his car, his lawn, he called the police. The police came to the scene of the accident, followed my tire tracks down a block, over two blocks, back half a block, and into a driveway. And, uh, and I guess I had cut my turns a little too sharp. I went over curbs and stuff, and that, I guess I was easy to follow. Anyway, they came up, and, they, and I was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol and dangerous drugs and for hit and run. And I was 16 years old, and prior to that, I'd never been in any big trouble at all. And this was a big deal. And uh, and I and I hated the consequences. I hated everything that happened as a result of that. So that did it. I said, no more reds. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it never occurred to me to give up the booze because the booze just works so incredibly well. You know, I could do without the reds, but you're not taking my booze away. And, you know, a little while later, I went to jail again for contempt of court because I walked into a courtroom so, uh, to tell my friend something. I was so ripped, they arrested me for contempt, and they let him go. Uh, it's just a series of bad breaks. And, uh, you know, about a year later, I'm, I'm driving home. Now, remember, I'm drunk every night. So I'm driving home. I'm almost, I'm within a half mile of home. Like, that other accident was within a half mile of home, too. This was within a half mile of home. And, and, I, and I got hungry, and I thought I should go to this jack-in-the-box and grab some food before I go home. And the jack-in-the-boxes were new then, and, and this drive-through business was new. And, you know, a jack-in-the-box, you have to pull in, then you have to make a really sharp left, then you have to make another really sharp left. And back then, you used to order into the head of Jack, this, gi this gigantic clown head, right? And, uh, and if you're really high, it was really kind of nerve-wracking. But... Uh, so then you order your food, and then you're supposed to go pull up, get your food, and then drive away. But I was so ripped, and I, you know, I was questioning my driving skills by now when I'm drunk. So I thought if that two left turns, man, that last turn pretty sharp, I'm liable to take Jack out. Then I go to jail for Jack slaughter. And I don't want this. <coughs> and so I thought what I'll do instead is I'll do the responsible thing. I'll pull up in front of the place. I'll walk up to the window, get my food, walk back, get in my car, drive home. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody goes to jail. So that's my game plan. I pull up in front of Jack in a box. I stagger up to the window. There's two men in front of me. As soon as I got in line behind these two guys, the guy directly in front of me turned around and arrested me. Damn, yeah, that's right. And, he, you know, he was, he was a, a policeman. He didn't have on his uniform. I wasn't that stupid. But he did, for some reason, have handcuffs. Now, I don't know if this is no protocol or if he was just a little kinky. I'm not sure. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, he drags me into the into the jack-in-the-box, and he handcuffs me to this rack of frozen burger patties, and they held me there. Then he came down, and back to jail I go again. Now, I'm 18 years old. I've been to jail for drunk driving, hit and run, contempt of court, now another drunk driving. And this ain't going well, you know. And, uh, and what I learned as a result of those three incidents, one thing I learned was how much I hated jail. Like, I hate jail. Some people can do jail. I hate jail. I don't have the DNA for jail. I sponsor a guy that... He was kind of new, and his, he had to clean up some wreckage, and his, the judge told him, you know, a $1,000 fine or 30 days in jail. He goes, I got the $1,000. If I want to keep my money, I'll just go do the 30 days. No big deal to him and to maybe some of you. To me, huge deal. I can't do jail. I hate jail. Clear on that? <laughs> the other thing I learned as a result of those three things was that even – as much as I hated jail, I was going to continue to put myself at risk of going back to jail over and over and over again because every day I needed to get drunk and every day I needed to take tons of other narcotics and all of this stuff is illegal and all the driving I did was illegal and all the businesses that I was in for off and on for years were illegal uh, because that was so important I was going to risk going back to the place I hated the worst because I had to drink. And anyway, for about the 10-year period after that, I stayed out of jail. I don't know. Uh, 
I, you know, I'd like to say I became a really good drunk driver or I was very clever or I smartened up. No, I think I was just lucky. I just was lucky for 10 years. I still got drunk every single day. I still drove drunk just about every day, but I didn't get caught and I didn't go to jail for 10 years. That was pretty remarkable. And, and during that 10 year period, I had a job and I worked every day and I could work every day because I had a drink every day, but I could, I, I found this place to work and they allowed me to drink there. I thought this is great, man. I mean, the boss drank just like me. And so <coughs> when I started with him, and, and we would start drinking at 4 in the afternoon. And then as the years went by and I progressed with the company, uh, we would drink earlier. Then we'd start drinking at noon. And once we started, we didn't stop. you know. And then we started drinking at 10 in the morning. And then I started drinking. As soon as we'd get there, we'd put out our hands. Whichever one was shaking the least would run to the store and bring back booze. And we would drink at work. That doesn't mean we'd sit at work and just get hammered. Just sort of like maintenance drinking all day long and then get really drunk at night. And uh, otherwise I couldn't have worked because no other job I think would allow that that I ever saw anyway. And I and I kept that job, I kept doing what I did. I did fairly well at it. Uh, uh, you know, when I was 26, 27 years old, if you would have said, Richard, how's your life? I would have said, I, I don't think I can get any better than this. I live in Long Beach in Belmont Shore, kind of a trendy little part of Long Beach. Bars on every single, well, two bars on every corner. I live down in Belmont Shore there. I drive a little black sports car. I have a job where I'm pretty well paid and pretty well respected, where I get to drink all day. I have a part-time business on the side, kind of a commodities brokerage, if you get my drift. And all my customers were in all of those bars up and down 2nd Street, including every bartender and every waitress. They would all come over for their commodities after their shifts, usually at 11 or 12 or 1 in the morning. So, I mean, I would have said, life's going on, and I'm loving it, you know. I was just in booze and cocaine. That was my whole deal. And, uh, and, uh, and, and what was happening to me that I didn't see is that I was getting eaten alive by alcoholism. And I didn't see it, you know. I mean, I was getting sicker and sicker internally and physically. I was waking up with these horrible shakes. I'm waking up just as sick as I could possibly be. But I just think it's a small price to pay for the amount of fun I'm having. And, uh, Anyway, it gets to the point now where I, I can't even show up for work anymore. Before I go to work, I'm drinking a half pint of vodka just to get a door. And if I get one drink past a half pint, what's the point of showing up anyway? I'm not going to get anything done. I'm too far gone. I'm too far into it already. And, uh, and that's how it had gotten for the last year when I was there. And I realized I just can't do this anymore. I can't perpetuate this myth anymore that I'm, that I'm a productive employee. I felt like I'd become a fraud. And, and, I, and the booze that I was consuming wasn't taking the fear away now. When I would go see clients and I would do big projects, it was just living in fear, uh, even with the booze. And I thought, I just can't do this anymore. I can't work anymore. And I quit. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a kind of a cold I had for the last week, so I still have a cough. But anyway, um, so I, I just couldn't work anymore. I quit. I, re I left them a letter of resignation. They owed me some money. I went by the next morning, and they had my check ready for me. They were ready for me to be gone. And, uh, and they, at that time, they owed me $2,000. And, and so then I get the check. I get in my car. I'm driving away, and I'm thinking, well, I can probably never work again because I don't know of any other place in the world that will let me work in this condition. And I have to drink when I wake up every single morning, and I know nobody will hire me in that condition. So the trick is going to be how do I stretch this $2,000 into the rest of my life? <laughs> Shrewd investing. So my part-time business is now going to become my full-time business. I'll become the world's first successful uh, using drunken cocaine dealer, and I'll do it for the rest of my life. And that's how it's going to work. And uh, 
you know, do the math. How long did it last? Six months maybe. Now everything is gone, you know. And now I'm getting stuff from you, and I sell it to you to pay you off, and something fronted from you to sell it to you to pay you off. And I'm doing this shell game with a lot of dangerous people, and, and it's all coming down. And, you know, my alcoholism is so bad. I'm consuming so much. I love my product line way too much. And, uh, <laughs> and, a, and a drunker I would get when you're up day two, day three, day four with no sleep, you're making really bad business decisions. And, and uh, so anyway, everything's going down the tubes. And finally, I'm, I'm visited by these two men with weapons. They got me. You know, they came in the morning when I was passed out. And they put a gun to my knee. They said, give us the money you owe this guy or the knee goes. And, and I said, I don't have any money. Look around. There's no money. You want money? Find money. You can have it all. But I don't have any money. So if you have to shoot, shoot. And they looked at each other. And one of them left the room. I could hear him on the phone in the living room. He says, hey, Mike. He says, go ahead and shoot. Now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he comes back in. He goes, you still got that car? And they knew I had that little black sports car. I said, yep. It's the last thing I own. They said, well, we can either take the car or the knee. And frankly, we don't care which. We just need to do it now. So make up your mind. And I remember laying there with this gun to me thinking, Car, knee, <laughs> knee. And then I thought, but if they, sh they had the gun to my left knee and my car was a five-speed with a clutch, and if they shoot the left knee off, I won't be able to operate the clutch anyway. So take the car. What the heck? You know, that was my rationale. So they take the car, and I sign the pink slip. They drive it away. Now everything's gone, and I'm out of business, you know, and, and I don't have any money, and I'm just a drunk. And then there's a knock on the door, I open the door, and there's two deputy sheriffs standing there. LA, they had, they had on their uniforms and their badges and their guns. They were legit, you know. And they said, Richard Wade? I said, yeah. And they said, step outside. And I immediately thought they were there to bust me for what had been going on around there. And, uh, but when they said step outside, I immediately thought, wait a minute, so far so good. Because <laughs> if they're going to bust me for what's going on in there, it's not going to be sheriffs, it's going to be DEA, and they're not going to invite me to step outside. They're going to come inside with a search warrant. So as I'm stepping out, I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe they just want me to help them solve a caper or something. You know, <laughs> Maybe there's been a rash of burglaries in the neighborhood, and they want to know if I've seen any bad guys. But anyway, I step outside the door feeling pretty good, and as soon as I got outside the front door, they reached back and they pulled the door closed behind me and they put a padlock on it. And they said, you've now been officially evicted. You can never go back in that apartment again. I hadn't paid rent for a long time. And, uh, and I said, but you can't just walk up and evict somebody. There's a long, complicated process that you have to go through before you can evict somebody. And they said, yes, there is, and you've been through it. And, and I didn't know, because I quit opening mail a long time before that, you know. And if you don't respond to things like summons and notices, uh, defaults to the plaintiff, they win, you lose, and you get evicted. Then the sheriff said, now, you have to leave now. You can't even go back in. Do you have your wallet? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you can't go back in the apartment. Everything in there now belongs to your landlord. You have to leave. We know you don't have your car anymore. We've been keeping an eye on you for a little while. So we want you to leave Los Angeles County and on foot, and we're going to follow along to make sure you make it. And then Belmont Shore, you can walk right through Belmont Shore uh, and down Pacific Coast Highway over a little bridge into Seal Beach, which is Orange County. They just wanted me out of the county. They said, if we ever see you in Los Angeles County again, we'll arrest you. And I said, for what? And they said, you don't need to worry about that. We'll fill in the blanks. So I started walking. I mean, I had guns. And, uh, and, and they followed me in their car. You know, I would walk, and they would, like, pull up and check on me and urge me on. And then I'd walk further, and they would catch up with me. And they followed me all the way to where the bridge is. It goes into Seal Beach. And I get to where, walk across that bridge. That's the county line. As soon as I got there, they honked their horn right there, and then they waved to me. Like this. <laughs> I turned around, and I waved to them like this. <laughs> Now, bottom line is, uh, I, when I think about my life, I think, 
I wish at least by that point, right then, I wish I would have known about you. I wish I would have known about recovery. I wish I would have known about AA. I wish I would have known about hospital programs, detoxes, recovery houses. I wish I would have known there was help for people like us, but I didn't know. I never knew anybody in my life who had ever sobered up. So I didn't know this existed. So I started walking across that bridge, and I had nowhere to go. Uh, my family didn't want anything to do with me. My friends were in the business, and I was in bad, uh, hot water with most of them. Uh, I didn't have anybody to turn to, and I walked across that bridge, and I kept walking for four and a half years. And for four and a half years, I was in absolute trunk, and I lived on the streets, and I did what I had to do to get booze into my system every day. In the morning, I would figure out a way to hustle booze. You know, this was before it was trendy to hold a sign on a corner, you know. You had to work to get money back then. And uh, anyway, I figured out ways to get money every single day, enough money to get booze. Or I would steal, or I would do whatever I had to do, but I would get drunk every single day. And uh, and I lived that life, and it was horrible. It was just the worst existence I could ever imagine. I didn't live that life. I just existed. And I got drunk every single day. And after a few years of that, I was snuck back into Long Beach, because I'm a pretty clever alcoholic. And I was drinking downtown Long Beach. And downtown Long Beach, there's this part of downtown back then where there's a library. You saw that? She didn't see it. I told you I was a teenager in the 60s, so anything's liable to be happening there. <laughs> anyway, uh, there was a library, a courthouse, a police station, and a park, Lincoln Park. And we used to drink in that park. All the winos and us, we would drink at Lincoln Park. And, you know, why winos drink in parks next to police stations, I've never quite understood. But that's where we were. One day I'm there drinking with the guys, and a girl pulled up in her car right there on Broadway. And she gets out of her car, and she's going to walk toward the courthouse. And I recognized her, and I hadn't seen her in 10 years. She used to be a girlfriend of mine. And we lived together, and we partied like crazy together. She was a flight attendant, and uh, and she used to bring home just mounds of goodies and just the best girlfriend a guy could have. And um, anyway, she was getting out of her car, so I walked over to her, uh, you know, ostensibly to say hi, but really to see if I, maybe I could get a few bucks. Uh, and when I walked over to her, she didn't recognize me. And we used to live together. And uh, it had been 10 rough years on this body, you know. And But we started to talk. And she goes, that's you. Oh, yeah, that's me. And anyway, I said, where are you going? And she looked great. She looked like the girls in this room, all dolled up, pretty, makeup, hair, dressed nice. And I said, what are you doing? And she says well, that she got in trouble with the air when she was with the airlines. For, she was transporting stuff for bad guys, and uh, she got caught, and she says part of her sentence was to go to an alcohol and drug treatment program. And she said that she had just got out of this program three weeks before that day, and she had been in that program for four weeks, and she goes, now i got to go to the courthouse and turn in the paperwork to show them that I completed the program. And she says, that's where I'm headed right now. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean you went to this place for four weeks, and when you got out, you didn't drink celebrate? She goes, no, no, no. The whole idea was to learn how to live life without drinking. And she says, and I haven't had anything to drink for three weeks now, so it's been seven weeks. And I said, with nothing? And she said, nothing. Then she made it sound like it was not only okay to be undrunk, but maybe even preferable. And this was news to me. She was the first person. You know, we refer to that person as our Eskimo, the first person in my life that introduced the, the, the concept of recovery to me. And um, anyway, we talked for a few more minutes, and then she says, i got to go to court to turn in the paperwork, so I'll see you later. But before she left, she gave me that look. And I don't know if any of you guys ever got the look, but when they, that top-to-bottom look, you know. And, and, you know, I've been wearing the same clothes at that time for about two years. And, and my hair is out like here, and it's all matted and filthy, and a long matted beard, and all my blood vessels are burst. 
I mentioned the same clothes for two years, right? And they're holy and they're smelly. And she gives me the look, you know, and then she says, you know, Richard, if it ever gets really bad for you, and she says, this place I was in might take you because they have beds for what they call indigents, and you might qualify. And I thought, thank goodness. You know, okay, well, thanks for the information. She told me where the place was. She went to court. I went back drinking with the guys. And now I could no longer drink under the presumption that nobody ever stopped because now I knew one person who had stopped. Now, mind you, it was only seven weeks, but that's seven weeks longer than anybody else I ever heard of and I, and that was in my mind now <laughs> it was just it, the seed was planted and at some point after that and I don't know if it was weeks or months but at some point after that I realized I was dying from alcoholism on the streets of Long Beach and I thought man before I die maybe I should try and give that not drinking a shot and maybe and I, but I can't do it because I haven't been able to do it since I was 16 years old and maybe I'll go to that place she told me about and I went there and it was called Long Beach General Hospital and it was a county hospital and they, uh, they took me in as an indigent, and they let me go into detox for a week, and then they kept me for this 30-day program. And it was in there that I learned about you for the very first time because they, you know, they took us to meetings and they had people like you come into the facility and talk to us on panels. They told us about the importance of, you know, all the things that we learn about in sobriety, you know, going to meetings and studying the big book and working the steps and having a sponsor and, you know, being of service, being open-minded about spiritual stuff, just all the basics, by the way, none of which have changed. They're all the same today as they were that trip. I was in there and I thought, you know, after five, five weeks of being in there, I'm stoked, man. I mean, I'm holding down food. This is big. And I'm sleeping a little bit and the shakes are slowing down a little bit. And I'm going to these meetings with these people and I'm thinking, man, I just can't wait, man. When I get out of here, I want to join that world and I want to live my life sober. And, uh, and that was the game plan. I finally got out of there and I started walking up to Pacific Coast Highway because, of course, I didn't own a car. And when I walked out of there, I had a head full of intention. This is what I want to do, exactly what you're all doing. Uh, but by the time I got up to Pacific Coast Highway, which is about a two-mile walk, all of that intent was replaced with stark raving fear. Oh, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. I can't do this. I can't do this day undrunk. And I went in that liquor store right there, and I got a bottle, and I got drunk. And, 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 and I stayed drunk until I couldn't stay drunk anymore. And then I found another place like that that would take me. And always county places because I was an indigent. And, uh, and every time I would think if I can get three or four days sober in a detox and when I get out, I won't have to drink the next morning. My problem was that I would get drunk the day I got out every single time. And, uh, and in my story, it goes it happened 15 more times. And every time it happened and I wasn't able to stay sober, I felt more helpless and I felt more hopeless. In the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, in a vision for you, or in the chapter of the wives, cleverly hidden somewhere like that, uh, there's this description where it talks about that you can't imagine life with alcohol and you can't imagine life without alcohol. You're screwed. You know, you'll wish for the end. You'll eventually seek that jumping off point. And, uh, and I got to that point after all those. In between all these detoxes, by the way, I kept coming to AA. And I'll be between detox. I come to meetings drunk all the time, thinking if I can just maybe it'll rub off on me, but it's osmosis or something. That uh, I was so drunk. I have no problem with people coming to meetings drunk. My problem was I was so drunk the message couldn't penetrate through this veil of alcohol into this brain, and uh, so it never did me much good. But I kept trying and kept trying. So hundreds of AA meetings, 16 detoxes later. Uh, I can't do it anymore. I quit. You know, I give up. I'm, a, I'm dying from alcoholism. I'd been given six months to live, four months before that. I had a couple of months to go, and I thought, I can't do the time. I'm sick of it. Sick of the way I live. I think I'm sick of everything that I had become. I'm sick of living in pain. Liver disease hurts. You know, I'm sick of begging. I'm sick of stealing. I'm sick of hiding. I'm sick of getting beat up. I'm sick of everything that I'd become, and I can't do anything about it. 
And I thought, I can't do it anymore. I quit. Two months to go, can't do the time. My solution to the disease of alcoholism was to, uh, was to give up. It says in the big book, we'll ultimately be willing to make the supreme sacrifice rather than fight this disease another day. And for me, that was it with a fifth of vodka in me. I said, no more. I'm done. And I pumped up this vein, which I knew how to do because I used to shoot dope into it. So I knew, and I got the vein pumped way up, and I put a Swiss Army knife down underneath it, and I pulled forward, and I lay down to die. Because this disease won. It won. I lost. And, you know, when the big book talks about this thing as being cunning, baffling, and purple, I think that's the most understatement statement in the big book. You know, all the things we're willing to put on the table to continue to drink, you know, not just our families and our jobs and our integrity and everything else, but actually life itself we'll put on the table to be able to keep drinking another day. And that's where I got, put the knife in me, and I lay down to die. And, you know, obviously somebody found me, rushed me to another hospital, 30 stitches in my arm. They threw me out. They said, we don't keep your kind in this hospital. By law, they have to stitch you up. By law, they don't have to keep you. And so out you go. And uh, the next morning I got up, and I was furious that I'd been found. I was furious that I was still alive. And I thought, damn it, I can't even get dead right. Uh, <coughs> With that in mind, I got a fifth of vodka and I started drinking. I was angry. And I got about a fifth of vodka into me and something happened. So my moment of clarity came with a fifth of vodka mixed in with it. So it may not be the clearest moment you all ever heard of. But uh, I thought, man, you're going to get dead here real soon one way or the other. And you're going to die never having known whether there was any merit to living your life sober because you haven't lived sober since you were 16 years old. And I thought... If you find out that getting dead and being dead really sucks, you probably can't come back sober up and join AA. On the other hand, you could try this double A business one last time with everything you have and hope to God it works, because if it doesn't, you'll be a dead man. And that's the end of it. And with that in mind, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. They sent <coughs> two guys to where I was. They took me to a detox 35 miles away because none of the close ones would take me anymore. And during that day, a lot of things happened to me. I didn't do anything to deserve anything. I didn't do anything new or special. I just surrendered, you know, and, uh, and God did the rest. I left that detox the same day. I'd been in detox 16 times. I knew the drill. I got a ride somehow back to this girl's house in Seal Beach. I'd been drunk with her for a while, and I heard she was sober from AA. And I thought, she'll let me crash out on her couch. I don't need to be in this detox. I know the drill, man. I'm done. And, uh, and, and I'd always heard that people in AA, they always say they're always supposed to help the alcoholic who still suffers. Suffering. <laughs> so I bang on her door. She lets me in. I said, can I just crash out here tonight? I said, I, I gotta, I'm going to have a few drinks and conk out, but I don't want to drink anymore after today. Like, why would she believe that, you know? And anyway, she did let me in. I brought in a quart of vodka and a 12-pack of beer just because I'm going to finish the drunk off. I'm going to finish it off. And I sat on her couch, and I drank up all the booze that night with a whole different mindset. It was like, this is the last time I'm going to have to do this. Tomorrow is I'm going to be as sick as I've ever been in my life, but Tomorrow's the last time I have to do that. And with that in mind, I drank up all that booze, and around midnight that night, I called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd heard the man speak at an AA meeting. He was the main speaker. I was in the audience. I was drunk. But I identified with his story. He had given me his phone number. This had been two years before. I had his phone number in my pocket for two years. I'd never called him. But he knew who I was because he had seen me stagger in and out of meetings for a couple years. Anyway, I called him about midnight, and, uh, and, uh, and we talked for a long time. I don't remember much of what we talked about. All I know is that I was given up. You know, I was just so surrendered to this disease and, and to, the, to you. And, uh, he, and finally he says to me, stay where you are tonight. He knew where I was. He said, tomorrow after work, I'll come over there and I'll take you to AA. 
And then he said some bunch of other stuff, and we finally hung up the phone, and I crashed out on that couch. And the next morning, I woke up, and I didn't pick up a drink. Uh, for the first time outside of a facility in I don't know how many years, 18 years, something, long, long time. And I didn't pick up a drink because of the hope this man gave me the night before at midnight in the middle of a horrible, horrible drunk, second drunk of the day for me. And I stayed on that couch, and I got horribly sick all day long, which is what I do if I don't get booze into me. It's just horribly sick. And then finally about 6 o'clock, he called over there, and, uh, and I thought he was just going to tell me what time he was going to get me to go to a meeting. So I remember he said he was going to take me to a meeting. And he didn't say that at all. He just talked to me. And he talked to me. And he talked to me. And he talked to me like an old-timer should talk to a newcomer. And I want you to know this guy was an old-timer. He'd been around a long, long time. Over two years. And, um, <laughs> but he knew how to talk to a brand-new newcomer. He knew exactly what to say to me. We talked for about an hour. And he told me things like, he told me it mattered to him whether I got sober or not. It mattered to him whether I lived or died, and he told me he loved me. And all he knows about me is I'm the drunk that comes in and out of meetings drunk all the time. And after about an hour of this conversation, he find, I finally say, are we going to go to a meeting tonight or not? Because I was real sick. And uh, he said, no, I can't take you after all. And I asked him why, and he explained to me that his father had died that day. And his father lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he says, i got to go tonight to fly to L.A. to Indiana to help my mother make the arrangements to bury my father, and that's when I got it. You know, that's when I got it, that on the day his father died, this man took an hour out of the night when he should be packing his bags and driving to LAX and getting on an airplane. He takes an hour out of the night to let me know that I mattered. And, uh, and I've never forgotten that conversation. I've never forgotten that day or that night. And I haven't drank since that day, and that was over 35 years ago. And... Uh, <clears throat> So what does all that mean? You know, I mean, that means that what we say to one another can be incredibly important, even when we don't know that it will be. He had no way of knowing whether I was going to stay sober another day. How could he? He'd see me coming in and out of me. He's drunk for years. But he spent the time with me anyway, and he treated me with respect, and he treated me with love, and it worked, and I never drank again. And, uh, and he flew off to Indiana that night to bury his dad, and I stayed on that girl's couch for three days and finally got detoxed enough to be able to actually get to some meetings and then he flew back and then he took me to 30, mini, 30 meetings in 30 days and I and like I said I've been sober ever since then and and so I you know my 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 one of my points about all of that is is that how cognizant we have to be about the way we treat one another whether we're an old-timer talking to a newcomer or two people at the same level let's be aware of what our words can mean and how powerful they can be and how detrimental they can be if used improperly. So be careful with what you say and how you say it. And, uh, anyway, the way he treated me was just right because it worked. It worked for me, right? So I stayed sober. Uh, since then, I got a job after that and a better job and a better job. And when I was about 10 years sober, uh, he was still my sponsor. He remained my sponsor for 12 years till he moved to uh, Arizona. Then I got a new sponsor. But, but at 10 years sober, <coughs> I was helping to run a consulting company in Torrance, and I had clients on the West, and uh, and then I was going to go see a new prospective client in Chicago, and I thought, I've never been to Chicago before, so I'm going to turn this into a weekend trip so I can catch a game at Wrigley Field while I'm there, because I'm a big baseball nut. And then, I'm, then I thought, wait a minute, you know, when I was about two years sober, I attended this workshop put on by Joe and Charlie, and Joe and Charlie workshops are really fascinating, because they talk so much about AA history, and I got kind of lit on AA history, and I always thought, man, if I could ever get near Akron, Ohio, 
I want to go there because that's where AA started. I want to go to Bob's house. I want to go to the Mayflower Hotel. I want to do all that stuff in Akron. But I don't know how often I'm going to be anywhere near Akron, Ohio. It's not like a, it's not like Cancun or something. <laughs> it's Akron. <laughs> they make tires there. Wow. Anyway, uh, but I thought if I can ever get near there, I really want to go there. And so I'm going to go fly to Chicago for this business meeting, just stay a weekend and fly home. And then I looked at the map of the country, and I realized that on a map this size from Chicago to Akron is only about that far, about that far, inch and a quarter. And I thought, this is probably as close to Akron as I'll ever get. That also turned out that the weekend when I was going to go was the week before the weekend when they celebrate Founders Day in Akron, Ohio, which is a big convention to celebrate the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I thought, geez, I think what I'll do is I'll do the stuff in Chicago, stay the weekend, drive over to Akron and go to Founders Day. Told my boss I was taking a week off. He said, fine. I told my sponsor what I intended to do. He said, fine. And he said, as a matter of fact, during the week when I was going to drive across, only takes a day, but during that week, he was going to be flying into Fort Wayne, Indiana to see his mother, who was still alive but really sick in a hospital. He didn't know how much time she had. He goes, I'm going to go visit my mom. I haven't seen her in 10 years since he was back there to bury his dad, right? And I said, and, and uh, he says, so when you drive from Chicago to Akron, why don't you drop on down to Fort Wayne, Indiana, meet up with me, and we'll go to an AA meeting together. And I thought, 150 miles out of the way, of course I'll do that. Who wouldn't? And um, so that was a game plan, Chicago, Fort Wayne, Akron. And, uh, and then just before I was going to leave, he calls me and he says, forget about going down there. He goes, he couldn't go right then. Something came up here. He couldn't leave for probably a month. And he said, so you might as well just drive straight across to Akron. And I said, I don't think so, Ted. I, I said, I think I want to go see your mom. And he thought it was the weirdest idea he ever heard. He said, I don't know this woman. He had only talked to her twice in 10 years, let alone anybody else. And, and uh, anyway, he finally succumbed. And he said, okay, well, this is where she's at. If you want to go see her, go see her and see you later. And so I went to Chicago, did all that stuff. I drove to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I found the hospital she was in. I go up to her floor. She's in a room all by herself, and all tubed up, and a little tiny, frail lady, really, really ill, really old. And, uh, and I went up to the side of her bed, and she was in a room by herself. And I said, I introduced myself, and I said, do you mind if I sit down and talk to you for a few minutes? And she said, no, please pull up a chair. And I pulled up a chair alongside of her bed, and, and I reached out, and I held her hand, and I spent the next four hours telling her about her son and about the fact that her son had turned out how he turned out, about the fact that her son had given, my, given me my life the day her husband had died. And she, all she knew is that her son had been a convict. He had been a convict who had run out of Indiana when he was young, and he only flew back. He only went there once. That was to bury his dad and then get out of there. We had this great long conversation. Uh, at some point, she was so excited, she reached over and she picked up this little phone on the side of her bed. She dials this number. She hands me the phone and she says, this is my sister. Would you tell her what you just told me? <laughs> she says, I want to make sure somebody else in my family knows my son turned out okay. <laughs> I said, yeah. So I talked to her. She was even older. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we had this great conversation. The hospital finally forced me to leave because it was three hours past visiting hours. And I left, and I went up down, and then I went to Akron and did Founders Day, which was a blast. And then I flew home, and about three weeks later, my, my sponsor called me. He says, well, I just want to let you know my mom passed away yesterday. I said, that's a shame, Ted. She was sure nice. And he goes, yeah. I said, did you get back to see her before she died? And he says, no, I wasn't able to go. I said, well, that's too bad. He says, well, I want you to know one thing about that. I said, what's that? And he says, you know, for a 10-year period, after my dad died, I only talked to my mom twice. 
I said, yeah, I know. And he says, but after you two had your little visit, we talked on the phone every day until the day she died. And, uh, and there was some completeness there, you know, there was some healing that had taken place. And I said, that's good to know, you know. And in my life, I, I keep looking down at this guy's great watch that I'm about to steal, by the way. Uh, <laughs> These things go full circle and full circle, you know. You know, the day his dad died, Ted gave me my life, and 10 years later, just before his mom died, I kind of got the pinship for him, and, uh, and we completed a full circle, you know. And I'm going to tell you one more quick story about the same thing, because sometimes there are full circles, and sometimes we're a part of somebody else's full circle. And when I was about five years sober, I've always been an AA, kind of a service junkie, and, you know, H&I stuff, and whatever. I just like let's do what I think we're supposed to do. But for a while, I was taking the phones for our central office in Long Beach. That means at night when the office closed, they patch the calls straight to you at home. And so you, you're in your living room, and it's 9 o'clock at night, and your phone rings. You answer it, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they think they're getting through to the office. They don't know you're, that you're a guy in his PJs. They have no way of knowing it. But anyway, it's a great commitment. The later the night gets, the more amusing the calls get. Uh, <laughs> It's just fun. Anyway, I used to do it once a month. And so there's one night I'm taking these calls, and man, I get a call about 7 o'clock from some guy who is so drunk and so despondent, and so he sounded to me just like the way I felt the day I put that knife in my arm. That's how he sounded, but he was really drunk. And I said, you know, we're not supposed to pronounce anybody else an alcoholic. That's an inside job. But I said, buddy, you are one. <laughs> and I said, and you're just like me, man. And the only thing that's, that, that that saved me was that I was that I quit drinking. That's the only reason I'm alive, and, and the only reason I was able to quit drinking is because of my involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I said, why don't I send somebody to where you are right now and take you to a meeting? I don't care how drunk you are. And, well, I'm not quite that bad, you know. So I said, well, if you don't want me to send somebody there like a stranger, maybe you can get a ride from somebody else. Don't drive, but see if you can get to this meeting. He told me where he was, and I told him where a meeting was that was near him. So we have this long, long conversation, and then we finally say our goodbyes, and uh, about 10 o'clock that night, I answered the phone again, and again, and again, and I answer it, and it's the same guy. He calls me back about 10 o'clock, and he says, I went to that meeting you told me about, and he says, my neighbor took me, and he says, maybe there's some hope after all. And I said, yeah, there is, you know. And now he's a little bit sober, so we talk on the phone for about an hour. And I tell him about us. I tell him about Alcoholics Anonymous. I tell him how this thing works. I tell him a little bit about me, and I let him talk to me about himself. Um, before the conversation's over, I told him that I loved him. I told him that it mattered to me if he lived or died. I told him it mattered to me if he got sober or not. And then I told him about more meetings to go to during the week, just in the unlikely event that he was going to. I didn't know. So we have this long conversation. We finally said our goodbyes. Three weeks later, I'm coming to my regular meeting on Monday night, which was in Seal Beach, this discussion group in Seal Beach on 8th and Central. And I'm getting there really late because I'm coming from a panel. I had Wayne Fanning, Industrial Strength Detox, and Al Monty. And, and I don't even know why I was going to the meeting. There was only five minutes left when I got there. I probably had to talk to somebody. So I go into the meeting, and it's, you know, it's a discussion group. We're all sitting in a big circle. I, I spot the one empty seat. I sit down at that empty seat, and there's a little piano bench. And the leader of the meeting looks around. He goes, well, we got time for one last person to share. And he points over towards me. And he says, how about that newcomer sitting next to Richard? So whoever was sitting next to me had identified as a newcomer at the beginning of the meeting. And he says, uh, yeah, and so he says, uh, I, he says, I, I, uh, I've been able to stop drinking. My life is tore up. I finally called Alcoholics Anonymous, but I called late at night because I knew nobody would answer after business hours, you know. And he said it was about 7 or 7.30 when I called. 
And he said, somebody did answer the phone, and he talked to me for a while. And before I could respond to what he said, I had to pull the barrel of a 45 out of my mouth. I was ready to blow my brains out. I took the gun out of my mouth. I set it on the table. I talked to this guy. I went to a meeting that night. I've been coming to meetings every day since, this, since then for three weeks now. And he says, I think this might work. And he, and he was the guy, you know, that I had talked to three weeks before. So then the meeting ends. I, I introduced myself to him. Uh, I said, why didn't you tell me about the gun? And he says, well, does the term 5150 mean anything to you? <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, ask somebody that just laughed. They'll explain it to you. <laughs> Some of you may have even, never mind. <laughs> anyway, the guy, the guy, I'll just call him, I'll call him Drew. That's his name, Drew. <laughs> he stays sober, you know, and he comes to our meeting every Monday night in Seal Beach. And, and after less than a year, he... He gets married and he moves out to Corona. He has a couple of kids, but he comes back to our meeting every year for his birthday. So we see him every single year. And once in a while he would show up in between that. And he just turned out he was having a great life. And then, and then about 22 years ago, I decided to open this bookstore in Long Beach. So we're, we're all in there working on it to get it ready. And it's a mess. The place was just a mess. And all my friends, thank God, knew how to do things like handle power tools because I didn't. And um, anyway, we're trying to get it cleaned up and fixed the stuff, you know, and we're in there working on it one day, and in walks Drew, uh, and I thought, great, he probably heard I needed help, and he's come by to volunteer, you know, and he comes walking in, but instead of like saying, oh, this is great, he just started laughing, and he's looking around, and he's laughing like crazy, and I'm saying, Drew, it's going to clean up, it's going to be okay, you can quit laughing now, and he keeps laughing, I said, you're starting to hurt my feelings a little bit here, <laughs> and uh, he says, that's not what I'm laughing about, I said, well, what on earth could be so funny, and he says, well, do you know what this place used to be, this unit? I said, yeah, it used to be a dog and cat grooming place. That's why it's such a friggin' mess. Uh, I said, is that what's so funny? He goes, no. I said, well, then what's so funny? He says, do you know what it was before that? I said, yes. I asked my landlord about the tenants that were in here before. And the tenant before the dog and cat people, there was an architectural firm, had this unit and the one next to it. I said, is that what's so funny? And he goes, as a matter of fact, yeah. He goes, you guys don't know about this, about me. But uh, I used to work as an architect. I'm a certified architect, and I used to work as an architect, and I used to work for this firm in this office. I mean, you can't write this stuff, right? And he pointed right to where his back in those days where his drafting board was. He pointed back to where my refrigerator was. That's where he kept his booze. He ultimately got fired from being an architect because he drank so much, which led ultimately to the gun in the mouth and the phone call, and now here he is seven or eight years later, sober still, walking into the exact same place. And so that was a completion of one of his circles, right, that I played a small part in, in one of his circles. And those things just happen over in our lives if, if we try to live our lives according to the principles we learn as a result of working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I've noticed is one last thing I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to sit down before somebody tears me down. Uh, these full circles you think about, they go like this. That's like a full circle, right? Not to us folks. Our full circles go like this. They go like this, and they wind up here. And they go like this, and they wind up here. And, 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 and what's happening is spiritual growth is happening, you know. And you can almost tell areas of significance in your life and moments of significance in your life where those intersections have taken place, right, over and over again. I wish you those moments. I wish you those points of significance. I wish you sobriety. God bless you. Thank you.